This is R.J. Rush Dooney, Easy Chair Number 46, June 7, 1983. Well, to start off with today, I'd like to refer to a recent Gallup poll, which was rather astonishing in its uh, conclusions. Now, when I say recent, I mean in the past six months or so. According to this Gallup poll, 44% of the Americans polled, nearly a quarter of them college graduates, hold very closely and strictly to the Genesis account of creation. Of the rest, 38% believe that while some form of evolution took place, God directed that process. Only 9% of the people in the United States believe in an evolution in which God had no part, and another 9% say that they do not know. Now, the results of this indicate very clearly that the picture we have had of America in the press and by historians is clearly not valid. It means that Christianity is far stronger in this country than they are ready to acknowledge so that the contemporary picture of the United States is a radical distortion. Now I'd like to turn to something else. This is a column of Pat Buchanan's, Patrick J. Buchanan, and I'm grateful to John Lofton, also a columnist and editor, for sharing this with me. I believe this re was released on May 17, but perhaps... Most of you have not uh, heard of this. This is an account of a study which is to be published by Dr. Judith A. Reisman. Now, I'll read the Lofton Report in part. Dr. Alfred Kinsey, celebrated author of the Kinsey Reports of three decades ago, was either a scientific fraud or a collaborator in child, criminal child abuse. Either Kinsey received his data on child sexuality from known child molesters, whose testimony as to the victim response is no more valid than a rapist's, or the doctor, who is to modern sexology what Freud is to psychiatry, permitted known sex offenders to criminally abuse children in his custody. 28 of whom were infants less than a year old. This explosive charge is to be published by Dr. Judith A. Reisman, a graduate of Case Western Reserve, currently in residence in the Sociology Department of Haifa University, co-authored by G.D. Levy of the Institute for the Study of Media and the Family at Salford, England. Dr. Reisman's Brief Against Kinsey will appear in a book authored by Dr. J. Gordon Muir of the Squibb Laboratories in Princeton, New Jersey. Now, skipping down a ways, in a critical chapter of Sexual Behavior in the Human Male on Child Sexuality, Kinsey and colleagues contended that, based upon their scientifically validated methods, they had proved that children down to infants sought adult sexual attention naturally and that they were generally unharmed by adult and child sexual acts, inclusive of fondling and intercourse, and that in many cases children were benefited and enriched thereby. Now let me add parenthetically in my Religion of Revolution, I dealt with the Kinsey Report on that point. Kinsey and his associates claimed that not only did small children seek such sexual relations, but that the only harm done was by the parents who told the children there was something wrong with it. That actually it was pleasurable to children and very healthy for them. Now, to continue, Kinsey's supposed discovery had been cited by the leaders of a gathering national movement to decriminalize sex between adults and children, including incest, and to legalize pornographic materials derived therefrom, to combat this idea that children are viable sex objects. Dr. Reisman told me over the weekend she undertook what she now describes 
as the first critical, ethical, and scientific analysis of Kinsey's work on child sexuality. Her charges. A. The experimental team used by Kinsey and company at the Indiana University Institute for Sex Research. Now the Kinsey Institute for Research on Sex, Gender, Reproduction, Incorporated contained nine adult males with known histories of child molestation. B. Far from enjoying the experience and relishing a repeat, many of the 317 children subjected to varied and repeated sexual stimulation, three for 24 hours straight, trembled, wept, screamed, fainted, went into convulsions and fought their partners. Kinsey's euphemism for the criminals sexually abusing them. C. Dr. Kinsey's claim to have scientifically verified the sexual response of the 317 children, would Dr. Reisman claims, make him a collaborator and principal in the most scandalous violation of human experimentation in the animals, annals of American science. D. Who were the male babies in adolescence? Sifting through the data, the Kinsey Institute has long since ceased communicating with Dr. Reisman and has denied her access to films believed available of the experiments. Dr. Reisman deduces these must have been the children identified as interviewees in ghetto areas who were interviewed without parental or guardian permission. The inescapable conclusion of Dr. Reisman's paper is that the infants and children either drugged or forcibly held down by Dr. Kinsey and his collaborators while being sexually abused were Puerto Rican or black. Doctor, that Dr. Reisman has been stonewalled by the Kinsey Institute is understandable. According to Dr. Muir, one participant at the Fifth World Congress on Sexuality in Jerusalem two years ago told Dr. Reisman that if she persisted in publishing her study, she would set back sexology a hundred years. If what she alleges is true, let us hope so. Given Dr. Kinsey's exalted reputation, his host of imitators and followers, the institutes modeled on the one in Indiana that have sprung up to emulate his work, it is difficult to believe he could have been party to what Dr. Reisman suggests or that such blatantly unethical conduct could have gone undiscovered so long. Still, one recalls that it is only recently that it came to light that American doctors had injected syphilis into black men in the Deep South in those same years, and so on. Now, on recent Easy Chair tapes, I have dealt with the fraud that has been endemic in science for some years the fraud on the part of the eugenicists, the fraud on the part of the cultural anthropologists like uh, Margaret Mead, the fraud that was there in Ptolemy, in Galileo, and in Isaac Newton, so that science's claims to be impartial and objective truth are clearly invalid. I think it's time we realized how much fraud there has been in science right along. Of course, in recent years, two books at least have been published on Darwin and how he stole other people's ideas. Darwin was a man without much in the way of scruples. Well, enough of that rather unpleasant subject. Now on to something else. A book just published by Rita Kramer in Defense of the Family, Raising Children in America Today, published at 1550 by Basic Books, and really not worth very much. Nonetheless, is interesting because it indicates something of what is happening. The book has some common sense uh, points. I thought that... Uh, the author, Rita Kramer, showed good common sense in commenting on the fact, let me quote, 
The best toys are the household items and personal effects, a saucepan, daddy's hat, a bunch of keys, mommy's shoes, a wooden spoon, a comb and brush, that foster identification with grown-ups through playing at being them and doing what they do, unquote. Now, I have pointed out in my philosophy of the Christian curriculum and elsewhere that our modern idea of adolescence is nonsense. There is nothing biological about the adolescent revolt. It is a cultural product, a product of humanism. Historically, in most healthy cultures, what we see is the children begin by playing with the, to with the things that pertain to their parents, their mother and their father, because the child's great desire is to emulate the parent. Then with adolescence, they str strive most of all to do those things which mean a putting on of maturity so that as children they play with a daddy's hat and mother's shoes and saucepan, but when they begin to mature, they want to do the work the father and the mother are doing. And they strive then to pattern themselves in a mature way on their parents. It has been modern statist education that has created the hostility and the revolt. It is a modern product through and through. You have to go back to cultures in decline and near collapse, as in ancient Greece and ancient Rome and the late Middle Ages, to find anything similar. It is a symptom of decay and approaching death in a culture. I think it's very interesting that in Christian families today whose children go to Christian school, adolescence is a disappearing phenomenon. Many children go through that period without having a trace of the ostensibly adolescent behavior. Well, then uh, there are some other points that are very interesting. Uh, I testified in a trial in Michigan last week and I'll talk more about the trial in a moment. Remind me, Chuck, if when I finish with Rita Kramer, I forget to do so. But the state child care facility, or the department, had as its guideline the necessity for developing the ego concept in the child. The child was not to be frustrated. The child was to have its way in order to grow up a fulfilled person. Well, Rita Kramer tackles that idea and says, and I quote, carried to its extremes and removed from the context of an established religion or culture with its accreted traditions. Kohlberg's morality makes every person the center of his own moral universe, his own judge and execu executioner. If personal conscience is the only guide for the individual, there is no law at all, uh, and it is possible for each individual to feel that his law is the law, unquote. And of course, this is what has happened. As a matter of fact, Kohlberg, whom Kramer cited, has been, after Dewey, the major influence in modern education. And hence you have had the untrammeled egoism and self-centeredness of youth today. This amused me because it shows that humanists like Rita Kramer are beginning to get an occasional dose of common sense. Quoting from her conclusion, uh, sometimes it calls for new ways of looking at life. For instance, even if you are not religious yourself, think twice before abandoning the idea of a form of religious training for children that stresses the idea of a benign cosmogony and the role of holidays in celebrating community with others and the round of the seasons in nature. A religious outlook, as long as it is not a punitive one, may serve many-phased <clears throat> related needs for the young child, contributing to a sense of security, of belonging with others in an understandable universe. Formal beliefs can be outgrown and discarded later or adapted in some more personal way. 
more easily than they can be dispensed with in childhood. It may turn out that Sunday schools have more to do with the emotional needs of young children than progressive schools do, unquote. Well, what we have here is a purely pragmatic approach to the need for some kind of religious and moral training. Now, to go back to the trial I was at last week, it was in Lansing, Michigan. It was a trial of Dr. Harold A. Sire and the Emmanuel uh, Bible Baptist Church in Niles, Michigan. The church has a Christian school and it also has a child care department in connection with the school. Uh, these are increasingly common across the country because many working mothers are finding that state-licensed and state-approved facilities are humanistic to the core and unfit for their children. Well, the state wants to license all these schools, and it chose Dr. Asire's school as a test case. If he loses, he'll go to jail, and every other school will be taken to jail also, or court. Thus, it was a very important trial. I was on the stand, I think, about three, three and a quarter hours. Mr. Boothby, the attorney, was doing an excellent job of the case. And on cross-examination, the either deputy or assistant attorney general was trying to get me to say that there was a need for some kind of state control. And I cited the fact that we have in California a state-approved school which was highly regarded, and that nursery facility is now in trouble because at least one murder has been committed by the person in charge. That annoyed... Uh, the Attorney General's uh, assistant considerably, especially since I added I knew of no church child care facility that had been guilty of a like abuse, and that this instance was not an isolated one. There were many problems with state-approved facilities. He kept trying to get me to say that all the same there should be some kind of supervision above and beyond what the church would give. Finally, the judge, Judge Brown, intervened very gently, and he made this statement to the assistant or deputy attorney general. He said, you know, I wonder what would have happened at that manger scene in Bethlehem if a welfare worker had appeared on the scene. That really broke me up. <laughs> it was a while before I could go on testifying. And that's very much to the point, of course. Can you imagine what would have happened? There would have been a report filed saying that uh, this child obviously needed to be placed in a foster home. And the mother, the Virgin Mary, should be placed in some kind of institution because of her statements about uh, all that had transpired uh, at her conception and at the birth of the child. And obviously, uh, Joseph was some kind of flake to live with all of that and make no objection. So here was an obviously unfit home. It would have been a field day for a welfare worker. Well, enough of that. On to something else now. In a book which is no longer in print, but a very important work, Mario Attilio Levi, Political Power in the Ancient World, published in London in 19... 55 and uh, reprinted, I believe, in 65. Levi makes this interesting point, which is, of course, in line with the uh, Greek philosophical roots of political thinking in Greece and Rome. The 
point he makes is, the Athenians of the 5th century B.C. had the audacity to maintain that human reason is itself the source of legitimacy, and therefore of the right to govern and command. Now, of course, this made man the measure of all things. And to some degree, this doctrine began to take over in both Greece and Rome. It began increasingly to command the thinking of peoples, with the result, of course, that progressively there was an undermining of the premises of political authority. Now, this dream of Greek thought then became basic to the Western tradition insofar as Plato and Aristotle were at all important to the thinking of men. Both of them held to this kind of thinking. For Aristotle, the state was the embodiment of reason, and morality was to be derived from the state, so that his ethics is a product of his politics, and he makes clear that Ethics is a subdivision of politics. For Plato, uh, the situation was even worse. He saw the philosopher kings as the embodiment of reason, so that it was not the apparatus of the state, but it was the leaders, the philosopher kings of the state. So that in his republic, there is no such thing as law. There is the will of the philosopher kings. When much later he wrote at the end of his life his book on law, he still holds to this inherent rationalism. But at least there he was to, ready to hold to the need for formulating some kind of legal system apart from the will of the philosopher kings. It was this kind of thinking that helped destroy the medieval world of Christendom. The same kind of thinking very quickly infected the Western world. It came very sharply into focus in John Locke. For John Locke, and I'm quoting now from his second treatise, freedom of men under government is to have a standing rule to live by, common to every one of that society and made by the legislative power erected in it a liberty to follow my own will in all things where the rule prescribes not, and not to be subject to the unconstant, uncertain, unknown, arbitrary will of another man. This means that law is the voice of reason, and it requires the rational consent of men in order to be obeyed. Locke goes on to develop that point the consent of the governed. Now, to most people, reared in terms of modern schooling, this seems logical. But consider what was left out. Any law above and beyond man, the law of God, this is left out. On top of that, John Locke began with the premise of the moral neutrality of man. This is why those who very, very foolishly think of Locke as a Christian are so wrong. Anyone who begins with a moral neutrality of man has begun by throwing out the Bible, because in terms of Scripture, man is a sinner. He is not to be trusted. So if you get the consent of men, you're getting a consent to sin. And this is why where you have an abandonment of the higher law of God in terms of the pure consent of the governed, you have a rapid deterioration of society. Whether it is the consent of the people or the rational will of the philosopher kings or the rational will of an oligarchy or a dictatorship of the proletariat or a fascist leader, it is a corrupted will. It is the will of a fallen man and it leads to evil. And the greater the consent, the greater the evil. 
I believe I referred last time to the fact that Australia has a problem because the law there requires that every person who is of age must vote or be penalized. Well, they have broadened the area of the required consent. Having broadened it, they have taken a downward course. Ours would be far more rapid if we required everyone in the United States to vote or face a severe fine or maybe a few days in jail. Just imagine what kind of parties would arise and who would govern this country then. But it would be in terms of the logic that John Locke unleashed, the consent of the governed. The governed, ostensibly, in his thinking, unlike that of Plato, are all the voice of reason and are all morally neutral and therefore all capable of wise decisions. Well, in their wisdom, they've given us the world we have today. They've given us Lenin and Stalin and Hitler and... Uh, Carter and Reagan and a few others I could name. So, we must recognize the priority of God and his government and God's law above all human law. Or we are in progressively more and more serious trouble. Then again, turning to another work that I read, which is also not in print, American Reformers, 1815-1860 to by Ronald G. Walters. This begins with a very interesting uh, preface. The point made is that the various reforms in this country, whether they were religiously motivated or humanistically motivated. Each died because of one factor, war. War has played a major role in destroying reform impulses. This was certainly true of the Civil War, World War I, and World War II. because wars channel moral energy into the service of the nation. The moral critics who are concerned with problems within the nation are silenced. What they have to say is seen as selfish, unpatriotic, or irrelevant. After every war, there is a kind of moral exhaustion that sets in so that the immediate post-war era is not a period of reform. Thus wars have been quite deadly in their effects upon reform in any country, and certainly in this country. There is an interesting factor in this, that uh, one movement was killed by peace which tells us that perhaps it was not whatever it thought itself of being as being a genuine reform movement. That was the radicalism of the 60s. The radicals of the 60s, the demonstrators and all, claimed to have a vision for the total reformation of American society. Peace killed them off. Except for Tom Hayden, who is now reviving that movement, the movement died. So uh, that tells us that apparently it was not a genuine reform movement. Its major concern was a single issue. Well, now on to still another subject. Holbrook Jackson in The Rise and Fall of Nineteenth-Century Idealism has given us an interesting survey of what was essentially English and American idealism. This book, too, uh, I believe is out of print. It was published in 1969 
as a reprint of an earlier hardback published under the title Dreamers of Dreams. There are some uh, delightful comments in it. Uh, Thoreau is described quite rightly as a work dodger. Thoreau is one of the most overrated men in our history. People read his Walden as though it were gospel truth. Well, Walden was just on the edge of town, not too far from uh, Thoreau's parental home. He went out there and played at being a nature boy, but he'd come home for breakfast and lunch and dinner and hang around the corner store to swap stories with all the other loafers. Walden uh, is no ideal figure to follow. There are some choice excerpts here on Ruskin, for example, for whom liberty is really death, and Emerson, who said the wise man is the state, and so on and on. Uh, Thoreau, by the way, was a bachelor. Uh, a responsible life was not for him. Uh, he remained a bachelor. He didn't want responsibility in any sphere. But the thing that struck me most forcibly was a passage with respect to Ruskin. And uh, this sentence from Ruskin, Taste is not only a part and index of morality, it is the only morality. Quite a statement. In other words, in the modern world, because of the variety of influences of which Ruskin was one among many, stressing aesthetics, art has replaced religion. Aesthetics has replaced morality. And the result is that uh, taste is everything. So that we have a situation today which is quite unique in history. Well, another book which stresses this and uh, is based in part on uh, Veblen and Veblen's thesis, but modifies it as Quentin Bell on Human Finery, which was published in 76 and is also an out-of-print book. Uh, he develops this point that uh, fashions have become important precisely because in our day we have placed appearance, taste, aesthetics above morality so that there is no room in our culture today for anyone who aesthetically, in terms of his dress and appearance, is not in good taste. But you can be accepted in the highest places if you are a degenerate, if you are immoral, if you are homosexual, almost anything. That is no problem. And... Uh, he documents this at great length. I'm trying to find a particular passage, and uh, I don't seem to be able to locate it, which I thought is uh, was very telling. Well, apparently I laughed so when I read it I didn't mark it. But maybe uh, uh, this will be it. Let me try once again. Well, this is about it, or like it. Uh, this is what he said. Uh, it is not simply the judgment of society which acts upon the individual. Our confusion, when having sat for two hours on the platform of a public meeting, 
we discover that we have been wearing old socks, odd socks. Our still worse confusion when we find that our flies have been undone, even though nothing of any consequence has been revealed, has something of the quality of guilt. Indeed, I think it may frequently happen here as in other moral situations, that the offender may be not simply the worst, but in fact the only sufferer, a rebellious collar stud. A minute hole in a stocking may ruin an evening without ever being observed by the company at large. Our souls are too much a part of us, our clothes are too much a part of us for most of us ever to be entirely indifferent to their condition. It is as though the fabrics were indeed a natural extension of the body or even of the soul." Unquote. I think that is a very perceptive statement. In fact, I saw a very, very uh, amusing and pathetic example of that a good many years ago. The man in question was a man who had three last names for his first, second, and last names. All three names were family names indicating his deep roots in important families in the colonial era. I won't give his name, but uh, they were good names, names to be respected because they were important and godly names. The man in question had some faith or claim to of a somewhat conservative sort, but for him Christianity was one department among many. In other words, he was all for it. He didn't want any questions raised about it. But it was one department over here among many other departments so that he did not feel governed by his faith in every area of life. He disapproved of me because he felt that uh, I made religion too exclusive in its claims. He was a good man in spite of the fact that he didn't cotton to me. <laughs> I'll forgive him for that. He's dead now. He died unexpectedly and prematurely in an accident, and he was reasonably important so that it was a front-page story. His name was to invent a name that would give you the impression, something like this, Frothingham Dunbarton Oaks. In other words, when you heard the name, you almost felt you had to bow at any rate, I was at this meeting once, and uh, he was to be one of the speakers. It was at a conference. And uh, I saw him walk down the hall and duck into the men's room hastily before he went onto the platform. And he came out in a state of shock. His zipper would not zip, so his fly was unzipped. When he got up into the platform, there was uh, not a standard pulpit-type lectern. There was just something like a, a music stand, much sturdier, a single pole with a nice top to it, so he had no protection. The man prided himself on speaking without notes. The most he ever took, I was told, into... Uh, a podium with him was two or three three-by-five cards with some statistics and data to which he might refer. So he had no papers to hide behind. And his distress communicated itself to everyone there. Everybody knew something was wrong because he was so uneasy and so unhappy. He was used to a commanding appearance and perhaps for the first time in his life he was ill at ease, and it shattered him. And it was obvious to everybody, even those who didn't realize what it was, was that Frothingham Dunbarton Oaks was somehow shattered, very ill at ease. Well, I cite that because it is a memorable experience for me. Here was a man who was of a good, well, at least three good families, 
with a rich inheritance. And yet, at a critical point in his life a few years later, he made what to me was a most immoral decision, and it never bothered him in the least. At least not outwardly. And yet, the fact that his zipper fly was unbroken shattered him. Now that's what's happened. We have put all our emphasis today on appearance instead of upon faith upon aesthetics rather than upon morality and religion. Some scholars have pointed out that what has happened is that we have ceased to be a guilt culture. We have become a face culture. Let me go into that for a moment or two. Some thinkers have identified societies in terms of a guilt culture, these being the societies in which faith and character are most important. So that what upsets people is their failure to perform morally, their failure to do what their faith requires them to do. We have been the great culture that has been faith-oriented in the past. We are now in the process of shifting to a guilt culture, uh, to uh, a face culture. The Japanese have been the great face culture, the American Indians also. In a face culture, the important thing to do is to maintain at all times an appearance. You try to preserve the appearance of others. You never break that appearance in anyone because it is shattering. It will lead to suicide. This was true among the American Indians. If an Indian lost face, he committed suicide. In fact, I know of one tragic case where in one tribe, two brothers were competing for leadership. The mother clearly favored the one. Once when the other son came, when she was talking with some of her friends, women friends, and asked something of her, she spoke sharply and ungraciously to her son. There was only one thing for him to do. He went a few feet away, sang a death song, and killed himself. Now, this is a face culture. It is interesting that in the Western world we have a high rate of suicide now because we are becoming a face culture. Every kind of stress placed upon appearances so that people are not embarrassed by, let us say, adultery. They're terribly embarrassed by an unzippered fly or a run in their stockings or pantyhose. Things like that upset them terribly. With some, it's really traumatic. We are in trouble. And only a return to a belief that the faith must govern the totality of our lives can change that. Well, now to... Still another book. This one also, I believe, is out of print, but it's possible it has returned to print because it's an important work by a very important scholar, Christopher Hill. The World Turned Upside Down, Radical Ideas During the English Revolution. First published in this country in 1972 by the Viking Press. You might try that. I don't know what its price would be. But uh, what Christopher Hill did in this book was to deal with all the radicals who came to the forefront of public notice during the Cromwell era. The minute censorship of the press 
was removed. It was quite remarkable what happened because there was an incredible amount of uh, heresy and immorality that came to focus. As long as there had been a strict censorship and the imposition of severe penalties upon peoples, these things had been suppressed, but they had been running as a major current underground through the later Middle Ages and through the Reformation and Counter-Reformation era. These were ideas that were clearly atheistic. They were espousals of uh, a sexual revolution, of every kind of practice, of... uh, really far-out ideas that uh, were remarkable uh, because if you think we've had them in recent years, read Christopher Hill, and you will see that the same thing happened then simply because the lid had been removed. In our day, it has been due to the fact that there has been a recession of the Christian from the public life. People have withdrawn into pietism and thereby surrendered the authority. One of the things, however, that uh, tickled me no end is this. The various groups that uh, proliferated at that time included not only these revolutionary groups, but also groups that had been suppressed by the Church of England and were very devout Christian groups. The Baptists were one such. The Baptists had no buildings. The Church of England had all the buildings. And as a result, they commonly met in alehouses, in bars. That became the Baptist meeting place. So for a while, the alehouses were notorious as uh, centers of Baptist meetings. Moreover, the Baptists were fed up with all the dignity and pomp and circumstance of the Church of England, exceedingly hostile to it. They were also opposed to everything that uh, high-placed authorities were against. And one of the things that the reactionary powers that be of the day were opposed to was tobacco. It was some newfangled thing that had been brought in from America, and therefore they were against it because they didn't like anything new. So the Baptists, to show their distaste for those in authority, took to pipe smoking. And when they had a Baptist service... They all lit up their pipes to show they were free of the crown, free of authority. And uh, pipe smoking uh, was an occasion for Baptist congregational gatherings. As Hill says, Baptist services were the occasion of pipe smoking. So that uh, they were particularly... Uh, delighted to show their rebellion against everything with their pipe smoking. I wonder what would happen in a Baptist service now (laughs) if somebody lit up a pipe. (laughs) It goes to show you how times can change. Well, it's a remarkable book because it does deal with the problems of the day and the proliferation of antinomianism, the extent to which communist propaganda was propagated. Well, uh, there was opposition to this, but uh, it was not easy because the prevalence of this kind of thing was startling. There were those who fought it, And uh, some observed, as did William Crawshaw, the greater part, generally, is the worst part. 
he didn't have much confidence in the majority. Hill in this book has among a variety of very telling points uh, a statement or two which is derived from the work I believe of Thomas on uh, religion and the decline of magic as I recall is the title that the rise of magic was seen as a liberation from the fall. It was an anti-Christian concept. In other words, by magic, they were going to circumvent the curse of God upon the earth and the fall of man. And the intense popularity of magic thus represented a very strong strata of anti-Christianity. Well, there's a lot more here that I'm tempted to go into, but one of the things, too, that uh, is very important is what he has to say about uh, masterless men. The old forms of society were breaking up, and as a result, a large group of transients, workers who went from place to place, then many who accompanied them were just vagabonds and beggars and rogues and petty criminals. It became quite a problem. These people attended no church and they belonged to no social group. They stole and they plundered, but of course they were incapable, as Hill says, of any concerted revolt. As a result, a criminal underworld began to develop. And these masterless men were a major factor in the day. Moreover, because the work of Henry VIII had destroyed the social welfare plan of the medieval church, these men thus lacked the supervision and care that had once been given. The Puritans were beginning to do this, but they were just in the beginnings of reestablishing a Christian community. Well, our time is really up, so I'm not able to go into some other matters I had planned to touch on. I've enjoyed this session as always. I'd have not commented on the Bob Jones case because I intend to write an analysis of that Supreme Court decision and issue it either as a Chalcedon alert or a position paper. If uh, I do so, it will be out, I think, with the August mailing, since the July mailing is already at the printer's. Well, it's been good to be with you again, and in two weeks I'll be back with some more things to share with you. I do enjoy these sessions because I'm always reading, and I enjoy having someone to share these things that I study with. And uh, as a result, I look forward to these sessions. Thank you, and God bless you.